Illustrations in Preaching, a lecture by C.H. Spurgeon to his students. The topic now before us is the use of illustrations in our sermons. Perhaps we shall best subserve our purpose by working out an illustration in the present address, for there is no better way of teaching the art of pottery than by making a pot. Quaint Thomas Fuller says, Reasons are the pillars of the fabric of a sermon, but similitudes are the windows which give the best lights. The comparison is happy and suggestive, and we will build up our discourse under its direction. The chief reason for the consideration of windows in a house is, as Fuller says, to let in light. Parables, similes and metaphors have that effect, and hence we use them to illustrate our subject, or in other words, to brighten it with light. For that is Dr. Johnson's literal rendering of the word illustrate. Often when didactic speech fails to enlighten our hearers, we may make them see our meaning by opening a window and letting in the pleasant light of analogy. Our Saviour, who is the light of the world, took care to fill his speech with similitudes so that the common people heard him gladly. His example stamps with high authority the practice of illuminating heavenly instruction with comparisons and similes. To every preacher of righteousness as well as to Noah, wisdom gives the command, a window shalt thou make in the ark. You may build up laborious definitions and explanations and yet leave your hearers in the dark as to your meaning. But a thoroughly suitable metaphor will wonderfully clear the sense the pictures in the Illustrated London News give us a far better idea of the scenery which they represent than could be conveyed to us by the best descriptive letterpress. And it is much the same with scriptural teaching. Abstract truth comes before us so much more vividly when a concrete example is given, or the doctrine itself is clothed in figurative language. There should, if possible, be at least one good metaphor in the shortest address, as Ezekiel in his vision of the temple saw that even to the little chambers there were windows suitable to their size. If we are faithful to the spirit of the gospel, we labour to make things plain. It is our study to be simple and to be understood by the most illiterate of our hearers. Let us then set forth many a metaphor and parable before the people. He wrote wisely, who said, The world below me is a glass in which I may see the world above. The works of God are the shepherd's calendar and the ploughman's alphabet. Having nothing to conceal, we have no ambition to be obscure. Lycophron declared that he would hang himself upon a tree if he found a person who could understand his poem, entitled The Prophecy of Cassandra. Happily, no one arose to drive him, to such a misuse of timber. We think we could find brethren in the ministry who might safely run the same risk in connection with their sermons. Still have we among us those who are like Heraclitus, who was called the dark doctor because his language was beyond all comprehension. Certain mystical discourses are so dense that if light were admitted to them, it would be extinguished like a torch in the Grotta del Carne. They are made up of the palpably obscure and the inexplicably involved, and all hope of understanding them may be abandoned. This style of oratory we do not cultivate. 
We are of the same mind as Joshua Shute, who said that sermon has most learning in it that has most plainness. Hence it is that a great scholar was wont to say, Lord, give me learning enough that I may preach plain enough. Windows greatly add to the pleasure and agreeableness of a habitation, and so do illustrations make a sermon pleasurable and interesting. A building without windows would be a prison rather than a house, for it would be quite dark, and no one would care to take it upon lease. And in the same way, a discourse without a parable is prosy and dull and involves a grievous weariness of the flesh. The preacher in Solomon's Ecclesiastes sought to find out acceptable words, or as the Hebrew has it, words of delight. Surely figures and comparisons are delectable to our hearers. Let us not deny them the salt of parable with the meat of doctrine. Our congregations hear us with pleasure when we give them a fair measure of imagery. When an anecdote is being told, they rest take breath and give play to their imaginations and thus prepare themselves for the sterner work which lies before them in listening to our profounder expositions. Riding in a third-class carriage some years ago in the eastern counties, we had been for a long time without a lamp and when a traveller lighted a candle it was pleasant to see how all eyes turned that way and rejoiced in the light. Such is frequently the effect of an apt simile in the midst of a sermon. It lights up the whole matter and gladdens every heart. Even the little children open their eyes and ears and a smile brightens up their faces as we tell a story. For they too rejoice in the light which streams in through our windows. We dare say they often wish that the sermon were all illustrations, even as the boy desired to have a cake made all of plums. But that must not be. There is a happy medium, and we must keep to it by making our discourse pleasant hearing, but not a mere pastime. No reason exists why the preaching of the gospel should be a miserable operation, either to the speaker or to the hearer. Pleasantly profitable let all our sermons be. A house must not have thick walls without openings, Neither must a discourse be all made up of solid slabs of doctrine without a window of comparison or a lattice of poetry. If so, our hearers will gradually forsake us and prefer to stay at home and read their favourite authors, whose lively tropes and vivid images afford more pleasure to their minds. Every architect will tell you that he looks upon his windows as an opportunity for introducing ornament into his design. A pile may be massive, but it cannot be pleasing if it is not broken up with windows and other details. The Palace of the Popes at Avignon is an immense structure, but the external windows are so few that it has all the aspect of a colossal prison and suggests nothing of what a palace should be. Sermons need to be broken up, varied, decorated and enlivened, and nothing can do this so well as the introduction of types, emblems and instances. Of course, ornament is not the main point to be considered, but still many little excellences go to make up perfection. And this is one of the many, 
and therefore it should not be overlooked. When wisdom built her house, she hewed out her seven pillars, for glory and for beauty, as well as for the support of the structure. And shall we think that any rough hovel is good enough for the beauty of holiness to dwell in? Certainly a gracious discourse is none the better for being bereft of every grace of language. Meretricious ornament we deprecate, but an appropriate beauty of speech we cultivate. Truth is a king's daughter, and her raiment should be of wrought gold. Her house is a palace, and it should be adorned with windows of agate and gates of carbuncle. Illustrations tend to enliven an audience and quicken attention. Windows, when they will open, which, alas, is not often the case in our places of worship, are a great blessing by refreshing and reviving the audience with a little pure air and arousing the poor mortals who are rendered sleepy by the stagnant atmosphere. A window should, according to its name, be a wind door through which a breath of air may visit the audience. Even so, an original figure, a noble image, a quaint comparison, a rich allegory, should open upon our hearers a breeze of happy thought, which will pass over them like life-giving breath, arousing them from their apathy and quickening their faculties to receive the truth. Those who are accustomed to the soporific sermonizings of certain dignified divines would marvel greatly if they could see the enthusiasm and lively delight with which the congregations listen to speech through which there flows a quiet current of happy, natural illustration. Arid as a desert are many volumes of the discourses which are to be met with upon the bookseller's dust-covered shelves. But if in the course of a thousand paragraphs they contain a single simile, it is as an oasis in the Sahara and serves to keep the reader's soul alive. In fashioning a discourse, think little of the bookworm, which will be sure of its portion of meat, however dry your doctrine, but have pity upon those hungering ones immediately around you, who must find life through your sermon or they will never find it at all. If some of your hearers sleep on, they will of necessity wake up in eternal perdition, for they hear no other helpful voice. While we thus commend illustrations for necessary uses, it must be remembered that they are not the strength of a sermon any more than a window is the strength of a house. And for this reason, among others, they should not be too numerous. Too many openings for light may seriously detract from the stability of a building. We have known sermons so full of metaphors that they became weak and we had almost said crazy structures. Sermons must not be nosegays of flowers, but sheafs of wheat. Very beautiful sermons are generally very useless ones. To aim at elegance is to court failure. It is possible to have too much of a good thing. A glasshouse is not the most comfortable of abodes, and besides other objectionable qualities, it has the great fault of being sadly tempting to stone-throwers. When a critical adversary attacks our metaphors, he generally makes short work of them. To friendly minds, images are arguments, but to opponents, they are opportunities for attack. 
The enemy climbs up by the window. Comparisons are swords with two edges which cut both ways, and frequently what seems a sharp and telling illustration may be wittily turned against you, so as to cause a laugh at your expense. Therefore do not rely upon your metaphors and parables. Even a second-rate man may defend himself from a superior mind if he can dexterously turn his assailant's gun upon himself. Here is an instance which concerns myself, and I give it for that reason since these lectures have all along been autobiographical. I give a cutting from one of our religious papers. Mr Beecher has, has been neatly tripped up in the sword and the trowel. In his lectures on preaching, he asserts that Mr Spurgeon has succeeded in spite of his Calvinism, adding the remark that the camel does not travel any better, nor is it any more useful because of the hump on its back. The illustration is not a felicitous one, for Mr Spurgeon thus retorts, Naturalists assure us the camel's hump is of great importance in the eyes of the Arabs, who judge of the condition of their beasts by the size, shape and firmness of their humps. The camel feeds upon his hump when he traverses the wilderness, so that in proportion as the animal travels over the sandy wastes and suffers from privation and fatigue, the mass diminishes and he is not fit for a long journey till the hump has regained its proportions. Calvinism, then, is the spiritual meat which enables a man to labour on in the ways of Christian service. And, though ridiculed as a hump by those who are only onlookers, those who traverse the weary paths of a wilderness experience, know too well its value to be willing to part with it, even if a beecher's splendid talents could be given in exchange." Illustrate by all means, but do not let the sermon be all illustrations, or it will be only suitable for an assembly of simpletons. A volume is all the better for engravings, but a scrapbook, which is all woodcuts, is usually intended for the use of little children. Our house should be built up with the substantial masonry of doctrine, upon the deep foundation of inspiration, its pillars should be of solid scriptural argument, and every stone of truth should be carefully laid in its place. And then the windows should be ranged in due order, three rows, if we will, light against light, like the house of the forest of Lebanon. But a house is not erected for the sake of the windows, nor may a sermon be arranged with the view of fitting in a favourite apologue, a window is merely a convenience, subordinate to the entire design, and so is the best illustration. We shall be foolish indeed if we compose a discourse to display a metaphor, as foolish as if an architect should build a cathedral with the view of exhibiting a stained glass window. We are not sent into the world to build a crystal palace in which to set out works of art and elegancies of fashion, but as wise master builders we are to edify, to build a spiritual house for the divine inhabiting. Our building is intended to last and is meant for everyday use, and hence it must not be all crystal and colour. We miss our way altogether as gospel ministers if we aim at flash and finery. 
It is impossible to lay down a rule as to how much adornment shall be found in each discourse. Every man must judge for himself in that matter. True taste in dress could not be readily defined, yet everyone knows what it is. And there is a literary and spiritual taste which should be displayed in the measuring out of tropes and figures in every public speech. Ne quid nimis is a good caution. Do not be too eager to garnish and adorn. Some men seem never to have enough of metaphors. Each one of their sentences must be a flower. They compass sea and land to find a fresh piece of coloured glass for their windows, and they break down the walls of their discourses to let in superfluous ornaments, till their productions rather resemble a fantastic grotto than a house to dwell in. They are grievously in error if they think that thus they manifest their own wisdom or benefit their hearers. I could almost wish for a return of the window tax if it would check these poetical brethren. The law, I believe, allowed eight windows free from duty, and we might also exempt a few, that is eight, metaphors from criticism. But more than that ought to pay heavily. Flowers upon the table at a banquet are well enough, but as nobody can live upon bouquets, they will become objects of contempt if they are set before us in lieu of substantial viands. The difference between a little salt with your meat and being compelled to empty the salt cellar is clear to all, and we could wish that those who pour out so many symbols, emblems, figures and devices would remember that nausea in oratory is not more agreeable than in food. Enough is as good as a feast, and too many pretty things may be a greater evil than none at all. It is a suggestive fact that the tendency to abound in metaphor and illustration becomes weaker as men grow older and wiser. Perhaps this may in a measure be ascribed to the decay of their imagination, but it also occurs at the same time as the ripening of their understanding. Some may have to use fewer figures of necessity because they do not come to them as a foretime, but this is not always the case. I know that men who still possess great faculty in imagery find it less needful to employ that faculty now than in their earlier days, for they have the ear of the people and they are solemnly resolved to fill that ear with instruction, as condensed as they can make it. When you begin with a people who have not heard the gospel and whose attention you have to win, you can hardly go too far in the use of figure and metaphor. Our Lord Jesus Christ used very much of it. Indeed, without a parable spake he not unto them, because they were not educated up to the point at which they could profitably hear pure didactic truth. It is noticeable that after the Holy Ghost had been given, fewer parables were used, and the saints were more plainly taught of God. When Paul spoke or wrote to the churches in his epistles, he employed few parables, because he addressed those who were advanced in grace and willing to learn. As Christian minds made progress, the style of their teachers became less figurative and more plainly doctrinal. We seldom see engravings in the classics of the college. These are reserved for the spelling books of the dame school. 
This should teach us wisdom and suggest that we are to be bound by no hard and fast rules, but should use more or less of any mode of teaching according to our own condition and that of our people. Illustrations should really cast light upon the subject in hand, otherwise they are sham windows, and all shams are an abomination. When the window tax was still in force, many people in country houses closed half their lights by plastering them up, and then they had the plaster painted to look like panes, so that there was still the appearance of a window, though no sunlight could enter. Well do I remember the dark rooms in my grandfather's parsonage, and my wonder that men should have to pay for the light of the sun. Blind windows are fit emblems of illustrations which illustrate nothing, and need themselves to be explained. Grandiloquence is never more characteristic than in its figures. There it disports itself in a very carnival of bombast. We could quote several fine specimens of sublime spread egoism and magnificent nonsense, but one alone may suffice as a favourable example of a form of display which is rather more common across the water than in these old-fashioned regions. The author's name we will not mention, but the ex extract is given verbatim and it is taken from a sermon upon to die is gain. Let the young preacher ponder and wonder, but let him not imitate. We give the whole passage for the sake of the frigate bird and the granite porphyry jasper staircase. There is a bird that mariners call the frigate bird, of strange habits and of stranger power. Men see him in all climes, but never yet has human eye seen him near the earth. With wings of mighty stretch, high-born, he sails along. Men of the far north see him at midnight, moving on amid auroral fires, sailing along with set wings amid those awful flames, taking the colour of the waves of light which swell and heave around him. Men in the tropics see him at the hottest noon, his plumage all incarnadined by the fierce rays that smite innocuous upon him. Amid their ardent fervour he bears along, majestic, tireless. Never was he known to stoop from his lofty line of flight, never to swerve. To many he is a myth, to all a mystery. Where is his perch? This is fine indeed. Let us add, who shall lay salt on his tail? Where does he rest? Where was he brooded? None know. They only know that above cloud, above the reach of tempest, above the tumult of transverse currents, this bird of heaven, so let us call him, on self-supporting vans that disdain to beat the air on which they rest, moves grandly on. Grand idea. The critter flies without moving his wings, disdaining to beat the air as well he may, for he beats all creation. So shall my hope be, at either pole of life above the clouds of sorrow, superior to the tempests that beat upon me, on lofty and tireless wing, scorning the earth, it shall move along. Never shall it stoop, never swerve from its sublime line of flight. They shall see it in the morning of my life, they shall see it in its hot noonday, 
And when the shadows fall, my son having set, using your style of speech, but using mine, when the shadows disappear, my son having risen, the last they shall see of me shall be this hope of gain in dying, as it sails out on steady wing and disappears amid the everlasting light. I feel, friends, that no exhortation of mine will lift you to this pedestal of hewn granite, on which it is given to monumental piety to stand. Quite right, an exhortation cannot very well lift a body onto a pedestal. It needs a leg or an arm to do that. But what is monumental piety? Only by analysis, by meditation, by thought that ponders in the night-time, the majestic utterances of Scripture, and by the open lattice, or better yet, beneath the grand dome, bows in prayer and holds communion with the possibilities that stand beyond this life, like unfilled thrones waiting for occupants. Only in this way and in others suggested by the Spirit to minds fit to receive them will you or any ever rise to the level of the emotion which dictated the text. Where is Paul today? Where does he stand who, from his prison at Rome, sent out this immortal saying, Is there any of us? that has verified this statement that to die is gain. Not one. Pretty safe question. Who among us has been dead? We know he walks in glory. He moves amidst the majestic spaces where even deity is not cramped. Eloquent or blasphemous? Which? After all his struggles, he has entered into rest. Yet what has he received that is not in reserve for us? What has he that has not come to him in the way of gift? And is not his God mine and yours? Will the Eternal Father feed with a partial hand? Will he discriminate and become a respecter of persons, even at his own table? Piety can never receive into its mind the awful suspicion. Our Father feeds his children alike, and the garments that they wear are cut from a royal fabric, even his righteousness. They shine like suns brought by the action of a sublime movement into conjunction. Rise then, my friends, ye people of his love. Rise and climb with me the mighty stairway whose steps are changed from granite to porphyry and from porphyry to jasper as we ascend until our feet, pure as itself, stand on the sea of crystal which stretches in seamless purity before the throne. Upstairs to the sea, and up three pairs of stairs too. Sublime idea, or at least within a step of it. This piece of high-flown oratory sheds light upon nothing and does not in the faintest degree enable us to understand the reason why to die is gain. The object of language of this kind is not to instruct the hearer, but to dazzle him, and if possible to impress him, with the idea that his minister is a wonderful orator. He who condescends to use claptrap of any kind deserves to be debarred from the pulpit for the term of his natural life. Let your figures of speech really represent and explain your meaning, or else they are dumb idols which ought not to be set up in the house of the Lord. It may be well to note that illustrations should not be too prominent, or to pursue our figure, they should not be painted windows attracting attention to themselves, rather than letting in the clear light of day. 
I am not pronouncing any judgment upon windows adorned with glass of various colours which shine like meadows decked in the flowers of spring. I am looking only to my illustration. Our figures are meant not so much to be seen as to be seen through. If you take the hearer's mind away from the subject by exciting his admiration of your own skill in imagery, you are doing evil rather than good. I saw in one of our exhibitions a portrait of a king, but the artist had surrounded his majesty with a bower of flowers so exquisitely painted that everyone's eye was taken away from the royal figure. All the resources of the painter's art had been lavished upon the accessories, and the result was that the portrait, which should have been all in all, had fallen into a secondary place. This was surely an error in portrait painting, even though it might be a success in art. We have to set forth Christ before the people, evidently crucified among them, and the loveliest emblem or the most charming image which calls the mind away from our divine subject is to be conscientiously forsworn. Jesus must be all in all. His gospel must be the beginning and end of all our discoursing. Parable and poesy must be under his feet, and eloquence must wait upon him as his servant. Never by any possibility must the minister's speech become a rival to his subject. That were to dishonour Christ and not to glorify him. Hence the caution that the illustrations be not too conspicuous. Out of this last observation comes the further remark that illustrations are best when they are natural and grow out of the subject. They should be like those well-arranged windows which are evidently part of the plan of a structure and not inserted as an afterthought or for mere adornment. The Cathedral of Milan inspires my mind with extreme admiration. It always appears to me as if it must have grown out of the earth like a colossal tree, or rather like a forest of marble. From its base to its loftiest pinnacle, every detail is a natural outgrowth. A portion of a wall developed whole, essential to the main idea, indeed part and parcel of it. Such should a sermon be, its exordium, divisions, arguments, appeals and metaphors should all spring out of itself. Nothing should be out of living relation to the rest. It should seem as if nothing could be added without being an excrescence, and nothing taken away without inflicting damage. There should be flowers in a sermon, but the bulk of them should be the flowers of the soil, not dainty exotics evidently imported with much care from a distant land, but the natural upspringing of a life natural to the holy ground on which the preacher stands. Figures of speech should be congruous with the matter of the discourse. A rose upon an oak would be out of place, and a lily springing from a poplar would be unnatural. Everything should be of a piece, and have a manifest relationship to the rest. Occasionally a little barbaric splendour may be allowed, after the manner of Thomas Adams and Jeremy Taylor, and other masters in Israel, who adorn truth with rare gems and gold of Ophir, fetched from far. Yet I would have you note what Dr Hamilton says of Taylor, 
for it is a warning to those who aim at winning the ear of the multitude. Thoughts, epithets, incidents, images came trooping round with irrepressible profusion, and they were all so apt and beautiful that it was hard to send any of them away. And so he tried to find a place and use for all, for flowers and wings of butterflies, as well as wheat. And if he could not fabricate links of his logical chain out of the little rings of the vine and the locks of a new weaned boy, he could at least decorate his subject with exquisite ornaments. The passages from his loved Austin and Chrysostom, and not less beloved Seneca and Plutarch, the scholar knows how to pardon. The squirrel is not more tempted to carry nuts to his hoard than the bookish author is tempted to transfer to his own pages fine passages from his favourite authors. Alas, he little knows how flat and meaningless they are to those who have not traversed the same walks and shared the delight with which he found great spoil. To him each polished shell recalls its autumnal tale of woods and groves and sunshine showering through the yellow leaves. But to the quaint collection, the general public very much prefer a pint of filberts from a huckster's barrow. No illustrations are half so telling as those which are taken from familiar objects. Many fair flowers grow in foreign lands, but those are dearest to the heart which bloom at our own cottage door. Elaboration into minute points is not commendable when we are using figures. The best light comes in through the clearest glass. Too much paint keeps out the sun. God's altar of old was to be made of earth or of unhewn stone. For, said the word, if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Exodus 20 verse 25 a laboured, artificial style upon which the graver's tool has left abundant marks is more consistent with human pleadings in courts of law or in the forum or in the senate than with prophetic utterances delivered in the name of God and for the promotion of his glory. Our Lord's parables were as simple as tales for children and as naturally beautiful as the lilies which spring up in the valleys where he taught the people. He borrowed no legend from the Talmud, nor fairy tale from Persia, neither fetched he his emblems from beyond the sea, but he dwelt among his own people and talked of common things in homely style, as never man spake before, and yet as any observant man should speak. His parables were like himself and his surroundings, and were never strained, fantastic, pedantic or artificial, let us imitate him, for we shall never find a model more complete or more suitable for the present age. Opening our eyes, we shall discover abundant imagery all around. As it is written, the word is nigh thee, so also is the analogy of that word near at hand. All things around me, whate'er they be, that I meet as the chance may come, have a voice and a speech in them all. Birds that hover and bees that hum. The beast of the field or the stall. The trees, leaves, rushes and grasses. The rivulet running away. The bird of the air as it passes. Or the mountains that motionless stay. 
And yet those immovable masses keep changing as dreams do all day. This is slightly altered from Fables in Song by Robert Lord Lytton. There will be little need to borrow from the recondite mysteries of human art, nor to go deep into the theories of science, for in nature golden illustrations lie upon the surface, and the purest is that which is uppermost and most readily discerned. Of natural history in all its branches we may well say, the gold of that land is good. The illustrations furnished by everyday phenomena, seen by the ploughman and the wagoner, are the very best which earth can yield. An illustration is not like a prophet, for it has most honour in its own country, and those who have oftenest seen the object are those who are most gratified by the figure drawn from it. I trust that it is scarcely necessary to add that illustrations must never be low or mean. They may not be high-flown, but they should always be in good taste. They may be homely and yet chastely beautiful, but rough and coarse they should never be. A house is dishonoured by having dirty windows, cobwebbed and begrimed, patched with brown paper or stuffed up with rags. Such windows are the insignia of a hovel rather than a house. About our illustrations there must never be even the slightest trace of anything that would shock the most delicate modesty. We light not that window out of which Jezebel is looking. Like the bells upon the horses, our lightest expressions must be holiness unto the Lord. Of that which suggests the grovelling and the base, we may say with the Apostle, Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. All our windows should open towards Jerusalem, and none towards Sodom. We will gather our flowers always and only from Emmanuel's land, and Jesus himself shall be their savour and sweetness. So that when he lingers at the lattice to hear us speak of himself, he may say, Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. That which grows beyond the border of purity and good repute must never be bound up in our garlands, nor placed among the decorations of our discourses. That which would be exceedingly clever and telling in a stump orator's speech or in a cheap jack's harangue would be disgusting from a minister of the gospel. Time was when we could have found far too many specimens of censurable coarseness, but it would be ungenerous to mention them now that such things are on all hands condemned. Gentlemen, take care that your windows are not broken or even cracked. In other words, guard against confused metaphors and limping illustrations. Sir Boyle Roche is generally credited with some of the finest specimens of metaphorical conglomerate. We should imagine that the passage is mythical in which he is represented as saying, I smell a rat, I see it floating in the air, I'll nip it in the bud. Minor blunderings are frequent enough in the speech of our own countrymen. An excellent temperance advocate exclaimed, Comrades, let us be up and doing. Let us take up our axes on our shoulders and plough the waste places till the good ship temperance sails gaily over the land. 
We well remember years ago hearing a fervent Irish clergyman exclaim, Gary Baldy, sir, he is far too great a man to play second fiddle to such a wretched luminary as Victor Emmanuel. It was at a public meeting and therefore we were bound to be proper. But it would have been a great relief to our soul if we might have indulged in a hearty laugh at the spectacle of Gary Baldy with a fiddle playing to a luminary. For a certain nursery rhyme jingled in our ears and sorely tried our gravity. A poetic friend thus encouragingly addresses us, March on, however rough the road, though foes obstruct the way, deaf to the barking curs that would ensnare thy feet astray. The other evening a brother expressed his desire that we might all be winners of souls and bring the Lord's blood-bought jewels to cast their crowns at his feet. The words had such a pious ring about them that the audience did not observe the fractured state of the expression. One of your own number hoped that every student might be enabled to sound the gospel trumpet with such a clear and certain sound that the blind might see. Perhaps he meant that they should open their eyes with astonishment at the terrific blast. But the figure would have been more congruous if he had said that the deaf should hear. A Scotch writer, in referring to a proposal to use an organ in divine service, says, Nothing will stem this avalanche of will-worship and gross sin but the falling back on the word of God. The Daily News, in reviewing a book written by an eminent nonconformist minister, complained that his metaphors were apt to be a little unmanageable, as when he spoke of something which had remained a secret until a strangely potent key was inserted among the hidden words of the parental heart, and a rude wrench flung wide the floodgates and set free the imprisoned stream. However, there is no wonder that ordinary mortals commit blunders in figurative speech, when even his late infallible holiness, Pius IX, said of Mr Gladstone, that he had suddenly come forward like a viper assailing the bark of St. Peter. A viper assailing a bark is rather too much for the most accommodating imagination, although some minds are ready for any marvels. One of those reviews which reckon themselves to be the cream of the cream took pains to inform us that the Dean of Chichester, being the select preacher at St. Mary's, Oxford, seize the opportunity to smite the ritualists hip and thigh with great volubility and vivacity. Samson smote his foes with a great slaughter, but language is flexible. These blunders are to be quoted by the page. I have given enough to let you see how readily the pictures of metaphor may be cracked and rendered unfit to carry our meaning. The ablest speaker may occasionally err in this direction. It is not a very serious matter, and yet, like a dead fly, it may spoil sweet ointment. A few brethren of my acquaintance are always off the lines. They muddle up every figure they touch, and as soon as they approach a metaphor, we look for an accident. It might be wisdom on their part to shun all figures of speech till they know how to use them for it is a great pity when illustrations are so confused as both to darken the sense and create diversion. 
Muddled metaphors and muddles indeed. Let us give the people good illustrations or none at all. At this point I will close my lecture, which is only meant to be an introduction to my subject and not a full treatment of it. Amen.